Hey, I've got just a couple of quick corrections before today's episode. Uh, first of all, when I was talking about Ted Cruz and his reasoning for the Senate voting on this Supreme Court nominee, but not the last one, uh, I got the sets of numbers that I gave you mixed up. So just wanted to clarify that when a Supreme Court seat has been open during an election year, something like 19 times uh, the Senate and the president shared the same party, and they pushed through the president's nominee 16 out of 19 of those times. So the majority of the time, they pushed them through. There were another nine times where the Senate and the president were from opposing parties, and there was a seat open in election year. And only two times out of those nine did the Senate approve that president's nominee. The other thing that I wanted to correct is that several times in this episode, I mentioned that uh, these judges are giving rulings. And I just want to clarify, just like I said in the Alabama abortion episode, and just like Chris Ann Hall harps so many times, judges do not give rulings, they give opinions. And that's something that we need to try to remember. But it's just been so ingrained into the vocabulary that uh, I know better and I mess it up anyway. So I apologize for that. But just remember, Judges don't give rulings, they give opinions. So let's get to the episode. Welcome to the Make America Garrett Again podcast, your cure for the mainstream media. This show is your safe space to talk about persuasion, politics, and the effect they have on your life and liberty. Welcome back to another episode. This is just going to be a short episode. I'm thinking that what I might like to do more often is just... When there's something in the news and I may not have enough to bring, you know, like a full half an hour, 45 minutes, like I might do with some other things, but I did do have some thoughts that I want to share with you or some things that I want to point out uh, for us to watch for as this whole thing unfolds that maybe I can come to you with some short episodes that are maybe 10 minutes, 20 minutes, something like that. And that will enable this podcast to, to stay a little bit more timely when it comes to some of those big events that, that can kind of come and go pretty quickly. And it also helps me just to put out more content more regularly. And that way you're not waiting so long for for the next podcast. Uh, I can record this quickly. I can edit it quickly, get it uploaded to the internet quickly, and then it quickly goes to your phone and directly into your ear holes, as Pat McAfee might say. And with this episode, I wanted to take just a few minutes to talk to you about what's going on with the Supreme Court pick, uh, the nomination, all this stuff that's going on, and a little bit of drama between the Republicans and Democrats, because that's politics. But first, I do want to talk to you very quickly about our sponsor for this episode, which is the Be Better Tomorrow podcast. Listen, one of the best ways that you can live out your principles and live out your love for liberty is to be the type of person who is absolutely killing it in their home life, who is killing it in their job, who is killing it in their side hustle, and the Be Better Tomorrow podcast has the tools to help you with that. Jason does some excellent interviews, he does some excellent things on his own, and they do a really good job of just helping you to organize yourself and direct your talents and to to look at your skill set and to just absolutely improve your life in so many ways. So make sure that you go over there, you listen to their podcast, 
finish this one first, of course, but go over, look for the Be Better Tomorrow podcast, because honestly, it doesn't matter who wins the election in November. Is it going to be Donald Trump? Is it going to be Joe Biden? Is it going to be Joe Jorgensen or Howie Hawkins, whoever the green guy is? (laughs) Is it going to be any of those people? It doesn't matter. You can be better tomorrow. You shouldn't have to depend on a president, on your candidate winning to make your life better. You should be better tomorrow. And the Be Better Tomorrow podcast has the tools to help you reach that goal and to be better. So let's jump into the show. Last week, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. We've had several kind of scares over the last few years. She's had some health issues. Uh, She's obviously getting up there in age anyway. And there was some definite concern that she wasn't going to be able to make it through the Trump presidency, especially if Trump were to win the next election and go for another four years. And so obviously the Democrats are pretty upset about this because this could push the court more in favor of the conservatives and uh, the Republicans are as overjoyed as they can be, you know, they're trying to cover that up a little bit and try to show a little bit of respect for this woman who has passed away. But you know that they have been chomping at the bit to replace her since Donald Trump took office. And that looks like that that's what they're going to be able to do. But there was a little bit of question as to whether or not the Republicans were going to put forth a nominee to replace her. Because as you remember, back in 2016, Justice Scalia died and President Obama nominated Merrick Garland to fill his seat. And the Republicans had control of the Senate at that time. And they would not give Merrick Garland a hearing because they said it's during an election year. We need to see who the new president is going to be and we need to let the new president fill this seat. It would not be right for us to let a president, President Obama, who's on his way out of the White House to fill a lifelong seat for a Supreme Court justice. So they absolutely would not vote on Merrick Garland. And of course, Uh, Barack Obama was upset about this. The Democrats were upset about this. And Barack Obama was pushing the hashtag on Twitter, do your job, hashtag do your job. And this was something that I think a lot of people agreed with because when you look to what does the constitution say about this, the constitution pretty clearly says that the president should nominate a Supreme Court justice and the Senate should give that nominee a hearing and confirm or deny their eligibility to serve on the Supreme Court. It doesn't say anything about the election year. It doesn't say anything about which party's in control of Congress or, you know, whether or not the president is some secret Muslim who was born in Kenya or what his tax returns look like or any of these silly things that we get drug into these political battles. Instead, Constitution's pretty clear. President nominates, Senate confirms, this person gets a seat for life most of the time. That's it. However, this was a stunt that the Republicans pulled, and they absolutely would not vote on Merrick Garland. Now, they could have given him a hearing, and they could have just voted him down, but the problem with that would have been that they have to own up to their votes. And one of the things that Congress is so good at doing is just pushing off the responsibility, pushing off any of the blame for things that can happen. And so what they do is they a lot of times they'll delegate their responsibilities And they'll delegate it to the executive branch. They'll delegate it to somebody else so that somebody else can can do these things. And then they can just simply try to take credit or shift the blame when everything pans out and it either turns out to be good or bad. They can jump in and say, hey, you know, I was behind this whole thing. It was great. I loved it the whole time. Or they can say I was against it. I tried to stop it, but there was nothing I can do. 
And so that's the reason that they wouldn't vote on Merrick Garland is that none of them wanted to own up to whether or not uh, he would have been a decent Supreme Court judge. Instead, they simply wanted to argue that it would be improper for an outgoing president to nominate a lifetime Supreme Court judge. So that whole thing went on. Merrick Garland never got his hearing. They never voted on him. 2016 rolls through. Barack Obama leaves the presidency. Donald Trump enters. Donald Trump nominates Neil Gorsuch. The Republican Senate pushes him straight through. And just like that, he filled Scalia's seat on the Supreme Court. So a couple of years later, you have Brett Kav- the whole Brett Kavanaugh thing. Brett Kavanaugh is eventually confirmed after a whole lot of drama with that. Fast forward to last week, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passes away. Her seat is open. It needs to be filled. And the Democrats very quickly bring up what the Republicans said back in 2016, four short years ago, that it would be inappropriate for an outgoing president or a possibly outgoing president to nominate a lifetime appointment for a Supreme Court justice. And there was, you know, a, a couple couple days, maybe even just a couple hours of pause of the, the rest of the country wondering, well, is the Republican Party going to hold to this, this precedent that was set when they did it last time? Or are they going to take the opportunity to nominate a new Supreme Court justice? And we pretty quickly, we find out that, yes, they are going to fill that seat. And the Democrats are upset because they're saying that the Republicans set a precedent when they did this in 2016, that they absolutely cannot try to fill the Supreme Court justice seat when there's an election going on and this president could be on his way out. And the Republicans say, no, we're going to fill a seat. That's what we're going to do. And there's been some pushback. Uh, Somebody actually had Ted Cruz on. And they were asking him, you know, what what does this mean? You know, does this mean that you're just a bunch of hypocrites? And Ted Cruz actually had kind of a crafty answer. He said that, you know, several times, I think it was like 19 times or something like that, uh, that the Supreme Court justice has passed away during an election year. It was something like 16 out of 19 times, uh, you know, the vast majority of these times, uh, the, the new justice was not put through. They did not appoint a new justice. You know, maybe it was nominated, maybe they voted on him, but this, this justice did not make it to the Supreme Court in those election years. However, there's been another four, five, six, seven times, something like that, just a small handful where a Supreme Court justice is a seat has been open and the president and the Senate shared the same party. And in those instances, every time or almost every time they've got their nominee through. And so that was his justification. And, you know, it took some mental gymnastics, but I guess he did at least go to the effort to try to find a way to justify what the Republicans were doing here. So are the Republicans right to push them through in this instance? I would say yes, this is what they're supposed to do according to the Constitution. Now, the Democrats can claim that they set a precedent back in 2016, but the truth is, back in 2016, they were simply wrong. They did not fill their constitutional duty. Now, as you know, we say on this show, any kind of gridlock is always a good thing. When Congress can't get along, when the federal government can't get anything done, usually that's a good thing. Looking back on that, especially if you are a person who loves liberty and you are a person who has any kind of respect for the Constitution, then um, we can say that luckily it turned out in our favor with this whole Merrick Garland, Neil Gorsuch thing. 
Merrick Garland did not get through. And instead, you get Neil Gorsuch, who is an incredibly good constitution-abiding judge, and he he sees the constitution for what it is and uh, isn't seeking that office simply to change it. But looking at what are they going to do today and, and whether or not a precedent was set, look, it doesn't matter what precedent was set. They need to follow the constitution. The constitution says that they should vote on this person. And in these sort of instances, you always see one party or the other bringing up the constitution and using it to support them doing what they want to do, and you have the other party who's pushing back against it, and they always have a reason why, you know, in this instance, it would be the Democrats saying that the the Republicans set a precedent the last time, and so they shouldn't break that precedent that's been set, and other times you have one party or one administration bringing in the general welfare clause to justify whatever it is that they want to do that may be unconstitutional, but you always see the Constitution brought up only when it supports what one party wants to do and what the other doesn't want to do. And of course, we would probably say that the Democrat Party has a little bit more disdain for the Constitution and that the Constitution probably gets in the way of what they want to do a little bit more often, but you've also got the Republicans who flat out ignore what the Constitution says a lot of times, you know, especially when it comes to war. I mean, Congress hasn't voted on a war since, I believe, World War II. And our country has been at war almost constantly since then, but Congress won't do its duty and vote for that war the way that it's supposed to happen. And, and so many times you see uh, that the Republicans are, are just as much in favor of that as the Democrats are. And uh, kind of brings a question, well, why do they both say that they love the Constitution? And how can they both say that with a straight face? And Michael Malice, in his uh, newest book, The New Right, does a really good job explaining how they can come to this conclusion mentally that they still love the Constitution, even though most of the time they just absolutely do not care about what it says or the restrictions that it imposes. And so he gives a great analogy. He says, here we have what I call the pistachio paradox. Let's suppose another progressive, say Nancy Pelosi, was asked to name her favorite flavors of ice cream. In response, let's pretend she listed in order chocolate, vanilla, strawberry, and pistachio. Let's further suppose that about two-thirds of the time she eats her favorite flavor, chocolate. Then, two-thirds of the other time, she eats vanilla. Then, two-thirds of the remaining time, she eats strawberry. This means that she would actually only choose pistachio 0.27% of the time. If she ate ice cream every day of the year, she would only end up choosing pistachio once. Yet Pelosi could still claim, legitimately and honestly, that pistachio is one of her top choices when it comes to ice cream. And I think that's just a really, really good analogy and just looking at the way that the math breaks down in that to see how both of these parties can claim to love the Constitution. They can claim that that's one of the most important things on their platform is that they love the Constitution and what it says. However, there are things that they love just a little bit more. And it reminds me a little bit of Brian Regan talking about getting a snow cone after his Little League baseball games where grape is his favorite, but strawberry is better. Strawberry is his more favorite. And that's kind of what we have here. All of them have the Constitution. It is their favorite. But what I want to do right now is my more favorite. And that's what we have here. The Democrats have the Constitution. They love it. It's their favorite. Uh, but this precedent that was supposedly set in 2016 by the Republicans not doing what they were supposed to do that precedent was their more favorite. And that's what they're using to try to justify that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg 
her seat should not be filled by a Donald Trump nominee. Uh, they also brought up that her dying wish on her deathbed was that Donald Trump would not fill her seat, that they would wait until the next president's brought in. And, you know, who knows if this even happened? It really just doesn't matter because if everything were flipped over, if Hillary Clinton were president right now and uh, the Democrats had the Senate, there would be no question as to what they wanted to do. Both sides want to win. Both sides want to fill the Supreme Court with as many people that are on their side as possible so that they can get their agendas pushed through the government. It, it absolutely does not matter. There is no real principle involved in this. They just want to win. And that's one of the most unfortunate aspects of our politics. And one of the things that Peter Schiff brought up on Twitter was, look, if these Supreme Court justices, if so many of them weren't partisan hacks and they simply did their job and they simply interpreted the constitution as it was written and as it was intended, it wouldn't matter who fills the seat because all of them would be pretty good judges. But instead you have both parties trying to push their partisan person through to pass their partisan agendas to get what they want out of the federal government, which is what brings us to this problem we have and which is also what brings us to Trump's nominee to fill Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat, which is Amy Coney Barrett. And uh, she is already a federal judge. And I did look to Chris Ann Hall to kind of get her opinion of that. When it comes to the Constitution, when it comes to legal matters, uh, Chris Ann Hall is my go-to source. She understands the Constitution better than anybody that I know of, and she understands the history that surrounds it and the intent of what the writers meant when they framed that Constitution to help understand uh, the way uh, that our the way that the United States government was intended to work. And of course, we've moved so far from that. And as you've heard me say multiple times, that is a feature of government, that it always grows, it always gives itself more power, and it always, you know, avoids and shirks the, the rules with any opportunity it has. And, you know, as we learned in our ice cream analogy, it can still give itself more opportunities to grow and more power and still say that it values the Constitution that was meant to restrain it. But... When it comes to Amy Coney Barrett, uh, we do know that she was originally one of the picks who could have filled uh, the seat that was ended up giving, going to Brett Kavanaugh, and they did tell her early on they were going to save her to hopefully fill one of the seats of the female Supreme Court justices. Uh, they you know, already knew at the time that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was, again, getting way up there in age, and that she may not make it through the Trump term, so uh, you know she would have to wait until after Kavanaugh. So... Uh, they brought her up this time. Um, she is already a federal judge. She is, you know, again, fairly conservative. She is a devout Catholic, and the progressives have definitely used this as a strike against her to kind of make fun of some of her beliefs. You know, that she's also very socially conservative, and she is married and has several kids, and she believes that the husband is the head of the household. And, of course, these things, uh, from the progressive point of view, are just absolute attacks on the freedom of women. She is also generally against abortion and would generally be willing to push abortion decisions back to the state level rather than the federal level. And that is also something that is uh, really upsetting progressives and really concerns them about putting someone like her into a seat on the Supreme Court. Um, but what Chris Ann Hall pointed out is that Amy Coney Barrett is also a big believer in judicial precedent. And we talked about this as well uh, back in the uh, episode about Alabama's abortion law. And that precedent is something in the, in the legal field where uh, when a judge rules a certain way on a case, uh, 
a lot of times that is believed to set a precedent and that is believed to be used as a guideline for every similar case to follow it thereafter. And uh, we talked about in that episode how this is not really what the authors of the Constitution wanted, that they did not want general precedent to be set. And of course, one, one could argue that you need precedent because otherwise we would be trying the same trials over and over and over again. But the truth is, that's how you get a fair trial, is you get your trial with your situation, whatever concern it is that you have according to the law, not according to what some other judge ruled for some other person, but instead what your situation is and how it applies to the law. But over the past couple hundred years, as our country has grown, as the government has grown stronger, as the, the teachings in law school have changed, we've been taught to respect precedent and we've been taught to follow that. And the, the big issue with that, as I mentioned in that other episode, is that it makes a judge even more powerful than a king because this judge's rulings are not only just being used during their lifetime, but, that, but they're being set essentially for eternity and that it takes a lot to get a precedent overturned. And th these kind of things can just go on forever because one judge made one decision decades or even centuries ago. So that is a problem with Amy Coney Barrett. And that also means that when you come to something like Roe versus Wade, where uh, conservatives would love to see that overturned, and that's always their dream is to get as many conservatives into the Supreme Court as possible so that Roe v. Wade can be overturned. You look back to what someone like Amy Coney Barrett believes, which is that uh, if a if a president has been set and the, the definition that Chris Ann Hall gave as, as far as Amy Coney Barrett's beliefs are, is that generally if something has been viewed as law for 40 years and it stood up to multiple attempts to overturn it, then that precedent has been set. And what that means for Roe v. Wade is that Amy Coney Barrett believes that that decision is set. So conservatives hoping that she's going to get in there and overturn Roe v. Wade to you know roll things way back on abortion, um, that's simply not going to happen. And there have been interviews where they've asked her you know what she believes about abortion, and she does consider herself to be pro-life. But those are strictly questions that she's answered in an interview. And Chris Ann's co-host was really good to point out that when it comes to these hearings, when it comes to any other kind of interview or anything like that, these judges are going to tell you or tell the interviewer or tell the Senate what they want to hear because they're trying to pass this hearing. And that does not necessarily hold any kind of weight toward the kind of opinions that they're going to give as judges when they actually take the Supreme Court seat. And so, when you interview Amy Coney Barrett, when you look at what she said about abortion, yes, it sounds like she's pro-life, but when you look at the way that she's ruled, you look at the things that she's in favor of, she does believe that precedent has been set in matters like Roe v. Wade. So she is not going to be interested in overturning that, and that's something that Republicans and conservatives and, and pro-lifers and all of those people that fall under any of those categories, they're going to be excited about getting her into this court seat. But uh, as Chris Ann Hall points out, look, it's not going to happen. She is not going to be the one to help overturn Roe v. Wade, whether you believe abortion is right or wrong, whether you believe it's constitutional or not, whatever it is, uh, Amy Coney Barrett is not going to be the person who's going to be on your side to help you win that. 
one other big thing about Amy Coney Barrett is that she also supports the doctrine of qualified immunity. That that's something else that she believes is a precedent that's been set. Uh, there was a ruling that she ruled on where uh, some cops had chased a guy down and he was fleeing from them, and then they they were shooting at him as he was fleeing, and they finally got him stopped and they got him pinned to the ground. And as he was pinned to the ground and he had stopped running, uh, another cop shot him in the back and killed him. And it was ruled that they were protected by qualified immunity. She supported that ruling. Uh, I don't know if she's the one who gave that ruling or not, but she definitely was in support of it because of her support for qualified immunity. So when it comes to those two issues, which of course are, are always going to be hot button issues, especially qualified immunity the way that it is now, that's where she stands on those things. She is also what Chris Ann Hall would call a textualist for the Constitution rather than an originalist. And so that means that she is going to look at the Constitution as it's written directly. And of course, that kind of opens up some loopholes for them to find if they don't like the way that something is worded. Uh, if you you know go to the Second Amendment and it says well-regulated militia, then you say, oh, you know, well, of course, in today's terms, regulated means that we can, you know, put restrictions on those things. And so it opens up a lot of other issues with that as well. She is a textualist, not an originalist. And as uh, my friend Mike, who runs the Don't Statist on Me blog, was so appropriate to put out, that means that she is probably better than Justice Kavanaugh, but not nearly as good as Justice Gorsuch. So she is what she is. It doesn't seem like there are going to be any issues getting her through. A couple little things that I did want to point out as well is that the Senate does have until the end of the year to vote on her and to get her through. So if there are any kind of hangups, if the Democrats are able to pull another Brett Kavanaugh thing and say that, you know, she's been murdering puppies or clubbing seals or whatever it is that they've caught her doing in college and that they want to bring those things up to try to stop it. Uh, you do have a couple of extra months to get all of that stuff ironed out and to get it through. And uh, this, But the Senate should be able to get her through. Uh, they have 51 seats in the Senate. Uh, they really only need 50 because if there is a tie, Mike Pence can cast that deciding vote as the vice president. So it does look like it's going to go through. It doesn't look like there's much the Democrats can do to stop it from happening. Uh, but I did want to point out just a couple of caveats that could change things, even if Amy Coney Barrett is pushed through and does get the Supreme Court um, that the Democrats could do to fight back against this if they wanted to. Doesn't necessarily mean that these things are going to happen, um, but I do want to just you know put it in your ear that these things are a possibility and that you know somebody out there may be considering them and weighing their options as to whether or not uh, the Democrats want to try to do this to, to fight back and you know to try to take back some of the Supreme Court. So one thing that Chris Ann Hall is really good about pointing out all the time is that we are taught and we are told constantly that the Supreme Court is a lifetime appointment. But the truth is the Supreme Court, as it's worded in the Constitution, is a lifetime appointment according to good behavior. In other words, if a, con if a, if a judge is not ruling according to the Constitution... If a judge is, is being a judicial activist, as we see so many of these judges do, and, and simply voting along partisan lines and simply you know, giving opinions that are going to further their agenda rather than the actual constitutional issues at stake, they're to be impeached. Congress should impeach them, should remove them from office. They should be impeached and impeached often. 
we should see judges being removed from office. But instead, what has happened over the years is, just as Chris Ann Hall has explained, in law school, they teach this judicial supremacy. They teach that these judges can rule on things and that this sets a precedent forever and that we're to respect what the judges say and uh, that all of this gives them way more power than what they were intended to have. And um, that, you know, the way that things originally were framed is that if a judge gave a bad opinion on something, then it could simply be ignored, that they didn't have a whole lot of power to stop it. But as things have changed and as we've given them more and more power, things have completely flipped and the, the, the judicial branch has a lot more power than it really should. But According to that view, if the Democrats wanted to impeach Amy Coney Barrett, if they wanted to impeach uh, Neil Gorsuch or Brett Kavanaugh, they could do that and they could find something, again, whether it be, you know, Brett Kavanaugh type situation where they accuse him of this sexual assault in college, that would be an opportunity to impeach him on the grounds of, you know, good behavior, that, that he was not giving good behavior when these things allegedly happen in college and that they're going to remove him from office because of that. So if they get a majority in Congress, they can make that kind of thing happen. Now, I don't think that they would do that again because we've moved to such a system of judicial supremacy and because progressives do have a lot more power in the education system and in law school. So it's probably not something that they want to start because if they start impeaching conservative justices, then if the Republicans get a majority, then they can start impeaching more progressive justices, and, and that could open a can of worms that neither of them really want to deal with. Uh, the other option that the Democrats would have is something that's been brought up for a long, long time, and that would be packing the Supreme Court. And as most of you probably already know, there is no set number of Supreme Court justices specified in the Constitution. We've been at nine for a long time, maybe the whole time, I can't even remember, but we've been at nine for a very, very long time. But one of the things that was brought up, uh, especially even with Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR was pushing through all kinds of stuff during the New Deal and uh, during this, and he was getting almost everything he wanted because he was a Democrat, he had Democrat Congress, and they were pretty much just rubber stamping everything he wanted to do. But there were a couple things that he tried that were too far, even for the Democrats. And uh, the Supreme Court shut him down on a couple of issues. And one of the things that he really considered doing was he wanted to pack the court and he wanted to say, you know, I don't know what the number is, but if nine justices are shutting him down, maybe we expand the court to 15. or Maybe we expand it to, to 21 or 51 or 101. And then when the court is expanded to that number, of course, he as president would be able to appoint all of those open judges seats that have just been created. However, even Congress, even his Democrat Congress wouldn't go for that and they wouldn't let him expand the seats in that situation. However, fast forward 60, 70 years, whatever it's been, we're looking at now where things are, are getting even more partisan and even more tense between the parties and each party seeks to dominate the other even more. And so if you get a Democrat president who is elected in 2020, you know, if it's Joe Biden or, it, it, you know, maybe Trump wins and in 2024, we get a Democrat president then, then they vote to, to pack the Supreme Court in that case. And again, you just add as many justices as you want to give yourself a majority, and then you're able to get the things through that you want to get through. And then, uh, of course, the only thing you would have to worry about in that instance as well is if the Republicans get back in power, if they want to pack the Supreme Court and add even more justices. So what whoever did this would probably try to do is expand that and then get a constitutional amendment added that says we are limiting the Supreme Court at this number of justices so that hopefully the other side can't get in office and just add more. 
And the last thing that I want to talk about really quickly is that this idea of packing the court was brought up to Kamala Harris on MSNBC here recently on uh, Lawrence O'Donnell's show. And she was asked about what her position was on packing the Supreme Court. And this is her answer. If uh, Judge Barrett is confirmed and uh, the Democrats have control of the Senate next year and the White House and the House of Representatives, should the Supreme Court be expanded? You know what, let's, I think that, first of all, Joe's been very clear that um, he is going to to pay attention to the fact, and I'm with him on this 1,000%, pay attention to the fact that right now, Lawrence, people are voting. They're voting. This is not, you know, some can debate about, you know, election year. Should um, a sitting president be allowed or able to nominate someone to the United States Supreme Court for a lifetime appointment? This is not even an election year. This is like, we're, we're actually in the election. People started voting. People have been voting. Almost a million Americans have voted. All right. So that was an incredibly clear and concise answer from Kamala Harris. She seemed to be channeling her inner Joe Biden there, giving that answer. And and had somebody send this to me. And immediately when I saw this, I thought, I know what's going on there. I know why she doesn't want to give an answer. And I believe that the reason why Kamala Harris was so quick to try to deflect that question and she was so caught off guard by it and was just kind of stumbling around it and did not want to give any kind of answer or hint either way is that the Democrat Party is structured so much better than the Republican Party is when it comes to a sense of power and control. The Democrat Party does an excellent job telling their people what they want them to do, what they want them to say, what positions they want them to take. And they do a great job of making sure that anybody who pushes against the grain any is completely pushed out. We saw this during the debates and, you know, Tulsi Gabbard went against the Democrat line. She got no attention. They made sure that she was pushed out. They made sure that she got no media attention. They made sure that she was an outcast. And you saw this with Bernie Sanders going into uh, March. It's Super Tuesday. I'm, I'm running a blank. Hopefully it's Super Tuesday. Whatever it is, uh, their Democratic primaries, Bernie Sanders was picking up serious steam. Bernie Sanders may have actually won the Democrat nomination if it came down to just the votes. So what happened was that somebody from the Democratic Party stepped in and they said, listen, Elizabeth Warren, you're going to step down. Pete Buttigieg, you're going to step down. Mike Bloomberg, you're going to step down. And they made sure that all of these people stepped down. They endorsed Joe Biden. They did exactly what the party wanted them to do. So the power could be put back into the hands of the the mainstream Democratic Party, the people who are in control of that. And that is why they do such a good job at making sure that they can keep outsiders out. And, you know, Donald Trump could not have done what he did with the Republican Party. He could not have done that in the Democrat Party. That was the Republican Party is is much more. Um, they're just they're more loose. They're not as well organized and as well constructed. And, you know, that can be a good thing because that obviously allows for more freedom of opinion and, and that allows the party to go different ways and that kind of thing. But at the same time, the Democrat Party is able to keep control of what they want, make sure that they keep better control of power and um, that they only get their people in. And as you've heard me say before, the, the Democratic Party is going to make sure that even if they lose this election in 2020, they're not going to lose the Democrat Party to Bernie Sanders. That they would rather have Donald Trump as president than to lose their party to somebody as Bernie Sanders, even if he did get the presidency in that instance. So why is Kamala stumbling on her words? I don't think that it's any sign of incompetence on her part or any kind of mental stumble. I think that it was absolutely the party has not given her 
the line that they want her to give. And she was given this spot as the vice president nominee because she was willing to play ball with the party. She was willing to do whatever they told her to do. She was willing to, to redo her image in the image that they wanted as a party. And she was not about to go on MSNBC in front of plenty of Democrat viewers and to say something that went against what the party had planned for whatever they may be considering for packing the court. So that's why she was stumbling. It wasn't because she was unprepared. It wasn't because she was stupid. It was because she is beholden to her party and she will not speak on that until they tell her to speak on it. And with that being said, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Got a couple other things I'd like to talk about when I have a little bit more time. Would love to talk about the grand jury's verdict on Breonna Taylor. I uh, got some people asking me questions about the COVID vaccine, and uh, I will talk about those another day. But for right now, I'm all done. I got to get out of here. Make sure you go back and listen to our last episode. That was my interview with Stephen Ignoramus. Had a great time with him, and I will talk to you next time. But until then, stay kind, stay vigilant, stay free. Get out of here.